Coming up on this week's show, Pringles pay tribute to the ZX Spectrum. A Streets of Rage movie is on the way. And we chat to its software legend, Dave Taylor. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every weekend with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, of course, this weekend, the ZX Spectrum celebrates its 40th birthday. So why don't you check out Sinclair ZX Spectrum, a visual compendium from Bitmap Books. This award-winning collection features over 100 games, taking you through the glory days of the Spectrum, stuff like The Hobbit, Hungry Horace, Flight Simulation, and tracing the history of Spectrum games with some of the most iconic titles. You can get that and the rest of their retro gaming books on their website at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 323, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that each and every weekend takes you behind the scenes on the world of classic video games, brings you up to speed on all the happenings in the world of retro gaming and technology, and we bring you a very special guest now. Before we get into what's coming up on this week's show, actually, we are crossing the big pond, live and direct from New York City. I don't know why I'm doing the accent. Ravi Abbott. (laughs) (laughs) If it sounds a bit different, Ravi's in America at the moment. Yeah, I'm in Manhattan at the moment. I'm just uh, watching Al Capone walk down the streets. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Yeah, I've been on a kind of tour of America and um, I've still got a couple of weeks left. So, you know, I'm in my hotel room at the moment. You'll probably hear stuff going by, uh, lots of sirens and uh, I think a helicopter above. <laughs> yeah, it's if been we, really good If we fun, don't... Though. If we don't hear them, I want Dan to edit it all in and just use like GTA 3 <laughs> sound, of tr- sound effects, like, just constantly through the show, just like really obnoxious. I love the fact as well, there is a slight delay on the line, you know, like on satellite on TV. There you know, is. They're trying to do the yeah. news. Yeah, there's like about a second delay. So uh, yeah, hopefully yeah, there won't be too many awkward silences. But yeah, Ravi, you, you've been all, all over the place. You were at Silicon Valley last week. Yeah, I've, I've been to, uh, I've been in the South to Georgia. I've been to Silicon Valley as well and uh, kind of check that out. I saw the early Xerox Park stuff. So I ended up seeing uh, like, you know, the first mouse that was kind mm. of ever invented at the Computer History Museum. I even saw a private IBM collection. And this is mad. The guy gave me uh, a kind of radio radioactive detector, you know, a Geiger counter. And he was like, "You can take that on the plane coming back tonight." <laughs> yeah, he was like, "Take that on the plane, you'll be fine." I'm like, "I'm not going to New York with that on the plane, so it's going to be posted what? back." But um, what did you do? I was like, did Why you do you have these? <laughs> wow, so you've been really busy a couple of weeks, and obviously this week I know you're off to VCF, aren't you? As well, the massive retro gaming and uh, computer convention out there. Yeah, so it's kind of a Commodore special. There's lots of developers there, and I'm hooking up with Amiga Bill, and we're going to go to VCF and. Uh, should be really good fun. My first kind of big vintage American retro show. And I'm hopefully going to be able to do the retro hour after hours from VCF or, or the patron chat mm. at least, which uh, should be pretty awesome. Well, Ravi, we're very pleased that you took time out of your busy day, you know, fl- flying all over the place to uh, come and join us for the show as well. The joys of modern technology, eh? Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? 
Now, uh, we have got a guest this week that we recorded um, a good few weeks ago before you went away. We had to kind of rack our brains and remember what we talked about. But this week, I remember this was such a good interview. We're joined by id software legend Dave Taylor. And uh, God, we went through so much in this interview, didn't we? Yeah. So Dave's an absolute legend. And uh, he was working with id software kind of in the development of um, Quake as, as, as well as Doom and Doom 2. And he actually suffered from motion sickness, which was quite funny because the way that John Romero played the game and John Carmack, they they were just crazy fast. And I think he had to have a sofa to lie down on um, after the kind of motion <laughs> sickness happened. It was interesting to hear about those kind of early days at it, you know, when they were playing like um, Doom, you know, when it was still in prototype on, on a LAN, weren't they? Imagine playing, you know, if you're going to play Doom against anyone in the world, imagine playing against Carmack and Romero. Oh, that, yeah. would make you, and that like, would make you travel sick. <laughs> <laughs> and like the developments that he talks about as well. Like I didn't know that Doom was developed on the next computer and also the kind of ports that they did as well. So he talks a lot about the Linux ports, but there's an amazing story about the Jaguar ports and how they had to keep a cold Jaguar in the fridge and uh, take it out <laughs> when they were developing because they were really actually pushing that hardware to its limits. And, you know, I always love hearing stories from id Software as well. I mean, obviously, you know, we have John Romero on the show. I remember you went to see him in Ireland, didn't you, a few years ago? Um, and we did an interview with him there. And, you know, we've covered the company quite a bit, but I think it's always interesting. Just when you talk about, you know, Doom, there isn't a game that I can think of that kind of changed the world, particularly, you know, insofar as the influence on modern gaming, like Doom. I mean, you know, really that was the foundation of modern first-person shooters for many people, wasn't it? Yeah, and that kind of shareware model, helped open mm. it up and that and that continued as well because later on he did abuse which was uh, yeah. an amazingly good little title as well so we we get into all the kind of doom clones but also abuse and um quake and lord of the rings as well we kind of get into a uh, lord of the rings battle for middle earth um, oh, God, you know, RTS yeah. game. Yeah, so it was really interesting chat. So you're going to enjoy this week's guest. Dave Taylor is going to be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, lots of new stories for us to jump into. Um, I know you can't wait to talk about this one, Joe. It is happening. They're making a movie about your favourite video game franchise ever. <laughs> they are. They are indeed. They are making Streets of Rage the movie. And I just, fingers crossed, it's, it's good. So give us a lowdown on this thing. I mean, obviously, it's kind of been, you know, with the Sonic movies, you know, been out of the last couple of years, Sonic 2. Yeah. Everyone's kind of loving Sega yeah. movies so, at the moment, you could say. So, so it's it's been everywhere this week. You know, I've seen it all over Facebook. Ravi, you know, texting me this morning, first thing I woke up to because he was still up. Have you seen this, Joe? Tagging me in it and everything. <laughs> like uh, three in the morning yeah, hour time. Yeah, I yeah. think it was something <laughs> like that. So, yeah, so... The script is written, and it's been written by John Wick, uh, John Wick creator Derek Kolstad. Um, mm. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the John Wick's films. I've, I've seen I've the not first seen one. them. I've heard I've, good I, stuff about the series. Yeah, I, I've seen the first one, and it, they are right up my street. Like action, you know, kind of fighting films and stuff like action gun fighting films, like gun fu, you know. And I've only seen the first one. I keep meaning to check out the second and third one. It's just finding time, being a dad. I know I always say that, um, but it's been written right, been written by him. And then it's being produced by the same team who have actually produced the Sonic the Hedgehog movies, which is DJ2 right. Entertainment. Um, and they're also behind um, the Equalizer franchise. But this guy, Derek Kolstad, has actually wrote quite a few game adaptations recently. So he's working on the Splinter Cell film, My Friend Pedro, Just Cause, 
Echo the Dolphin, and he's also doing the Jam- Japanese manga series Helsing. Like he's turning all of them into films, and now he's doing. I'd well, love to see Streets Echo. of Rage. Like how how would that? Yeah, work? I don't like. I kind of get Streets of Rage. Like I get that. I can see that as a film concept. You know, based on the first game, like a corrupt city. And these, you know, the police are corrupt, so these cops take it into their own hands. Like, I can see that, and I can see it being a really good fighting film. Like, you know, if they do it in the vein of, like, um, The Raid. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but that was, like, a, uh, I think it was a Korean film which came out about 10 years ago now. If they do it as, like, a really, really action-packed, non-stop, like, adrenaline fighting film, I think it'll work really well. But Echo the Dolphin, don't really see how that would work. <laughs> It'll be like Free Willy. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> like, but I mean, the story of Echo the Dolphin is about aliens taking all the dolphins, isn't it? Or something. Mm, so. something, yeah, something random like that that no one ever remembers. Yeah, so I'm not too um, sure about that. But yeah, I mean, there's no release date or anything like that. There's no like castings or anything, but it's in production. It's wrote, it's been approved. Um, and there's a production team, you know, in the Sonic the Hedgehog films, like, Although they're kind of aimed at children and stuff like that, they've done really well, haven't they? And they're they're massive. You know, Sonic Hedgehog 2 is like the biggest film in the world at the moment, I think. Uh, yeah, and I think from, from everyone I know, it's kind of dads who've dragged their kids along to see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The kids have enjoyed it, but it's really the dads who want to see yeah, it. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I, I feel like with the person who's wrote the Streets of Rage film, I'm hoping they're going for the whole, like, it's going to be an 18 or a 15. It's going to be a violent action film like John Wick. I can't imagine it being like, a children's film. <laughs> See, I'm hoping. Yeah, then, no, because, maybe adult. Well, you know. Yeah. You know, Streets of Rage four that still kind of had that um, kind of early '90s aesthetic, didn't yeah. it? To it, which I'm hoping it's going to kind of be set around like you know 1991, Yeah, I, you know. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't think of it. I, I'm, I'm the same now. Now you've mentioned it. I hope it is set in '91, and I'm thinking about it now. I'm trying to think of it as a film, and I keep thinking of RoboCop. I keep. Yeah, seeing Robo, exactly, I keep seeing here. Robocop, like, you know, with the, the police chief and everything, like in the police station. I, I, I really hope that's like how they do it. And there's really camp like cyberpunks on the corners yeah. of uh, streets. And yeah, 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 yeah. They are, uh, oh, what are they called? <laughs> the splatterpunks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> you, you, with crowbars you're going to have to be um, attacked by prostitutes in it as well. That's, that's a key part of the game. <laughs> that is a key, that should be a key part of it. So. Um, I'm sure. I thought, thought Ravi was just describing his afternoon in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm sure I'll be reporting on it every week until it comes out, or at least whenever we see any information about it. So, fingers crossed. Um, yeah. It's as good as the Sonic films and the John Wick films, and better than the most recent Resident Evil film. I was going to say, you know, if we're talking about, you know, movie adaptations of Sega franchises, it just kind of seemed like, you know, they're on a good path at the moment with that crew involved as yeah. well. It could be a good one. Yeah, it could be a good one. So, um, yeah, since we get the trailer, of course, we'll uh, stick that on our socials as well. Now, this weekend, it is um, you know, a big celebration for fans of um, 8-Bit Micros here in the UK. The Sinclair ZX Spectrum celebrates its 40th birthday um, tomorrow at the time when the show comes out. So it's going to be on um, Saturday, the 23rd of April, 40 years since the Spectrum made its debut. And I thought this was really cool. Um, Pringles. Now, you know, I can munch down a tube of Pringles in one sitting when I'm getting dead easy. Um, but they've actually done a little post earlier this week on uh, Pringles UK and Ireland's Twitter account where they're saying this is a tribute to the original gamers, the OGs who've stayed in the game since gaming began. Now, it was a bit cryptic. It said, those who know, know. Those who don't, well, we get it if you opted for sound off, but watch this space. Now, have you guys seen this video? Yeah, they tweet yeah. yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've watched it. How do you it's describe it then, the, uh, the tweet? Um, <laughs> that it's, it's kind of like they're going through stuff. So they're like, 
before Elon, before NFTs, before AR. And and it and it and it pissed me off a bit because um like VR was they say before VR and it was like VR was a concept years before <laughs> in sci-fi, you know, the spectrum and stuff. Um it seemed a bit like yeah, just a bit kind of uh, cheesy to me. Um, well, a lot of people didn't know what this was about because when you listen to it, and the audio is the most important part of this. Now, they don't mention the spectrum or anything like that, but you actually see that kind of, you know, the flickery decompressed. Well, well they know, say there was Clive. They say there was Clive right, yeah, before yeah. all of this, which is reference to Clive Sinclair, you know. So then, obviously, someone thought, well, that sounds like the kind of sounds that a spectrum made. Mm when it was loading a game back in the day. So what did some enterprising person do? Of course, they transferred that audio file onto a Spectrum and tried to load it. All right. It turns out the Pringles have actually made, if you, uh, there's a little YouTube video that I'll link up um, in our show notes as well. They've actually just done like a Pringles advert. It says mind popping. A Pringles can rendered on a ZX Spectrum to celebrate its 40th birthday. So they've actually made a program that you can run on the ZX Spectrum Basically, a Pringles advert that loads oh, up on there. Oh, I see. I was a bit confused because I obviously watched the, the normal trailer for it and then watched it with sound as well. And I was like, oh, gosh. And I just assumed, like, because I'm not a specky guy, you know, I just assumed it was that was kind of like just what the spectrum <laughs> sounded like. Like, you know, obviously it is what it sounded like, but I just assumed that was like the peak performance of like music in the spectrum. And I was like, oh God, kind of thing. So, <laughs> you thought people listened to that for pleasure. Yeah, yeah. So um, that, that's there, there are cool. some, you know, they, they do there will be loading sounds. Like, yeah, a lot of nostalgia <laughs> for some people. Well, actually, um, if you look a bit further down as well, they've actually done like a render of what a spectrum themed flavour might be as well of Pringles. And they're calling it Sour Cream and Clive. Oh, yeah. Flavoured uh, Pringles, obviously, after <laughs> Clive Sinclair. So, I mean, it is nice to see, you know, obviously the spectrum celebrating its 40th anniversary, a big deal to us retro fans. But, you know, for a, a giant company like Pringles, it's actually kind of cool to see them showing it some attention, I think, and actually going to the effort of making a Spectrum program there mu- there mu- that you can download and yeah. run. There must be a CEO it's, it's, or somebody on the board of directors who's a big Spectrum fan at Prinkles. Yeah. It's, it's fun as well because it's kind of like, you know, they are getting onto retro games, but I did I did get annoyed by the term OGs as well because I'm sure OGs <laughs> wasn't around back then. So it does seem like a kind of let's jump on this retro gaming hype and... Uh, kind of do it and the spectrum's an odd choice isn't it you know you'd think they would have done something more universally appealing like just sold more globally but uh, they seem to be maybe they're targeting the uk audience here yeah this looks like it is just a uk account that's celebrating this but yeah i I think it's quite a cool little idea though and i think you know it's probably not something that many companies are going to latch on to because it's a bit of an obscure anniversary i think isn't it for those outside the retro scene so not something i'd expect from like a giant company like that yeah i I think we're seeing more of this kind of associating with retro games and and, you know it shows that kind of retro gaming and computers are are popular and of interest like you know maybe some kids seeing this is going to go what there was something before nfts yeah (laughs) life before (laughs) nfts it was the spectrum and pringles (laughs) yeah and i must admit the advert did work on me i'm really craving a pack of salt and vinegar pringles oh i am as well now i should have said that Feel free to uh, slip us some sponsor money there, Pringles. So, yeah, if you want to check out that and uh, download it onto your Spectrum as well. I mean, it's a really cool idea that you can run it on your original hardware. Um, I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. 
Now, this is something that I wasn't aware of, actually, Joe, but you found this story. Um, and this is something I showed this to my wife earlier. I said, we'll have to watch this tonight on Netflix. Uh, Netflix have released a new horror movie that's about retro games gone horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, you know what? I was browsing Netflix last night, funny enough. Um, and I said to I said to my wife, let's watch a film. She never wants to watch films, ever. Hmm. She never wants to watch anything together at the moment. Um, because it's always, oh, you want to watch a zombies or horror, Joe? <laughs> um, and I said, let's watch a fun film. And I was going through it, and this Choose or Die came up. And I watched the trailer, and I went, can we watch that? And she went, no. So I haven't watched it yet. So I might have to probably, <laughs> probably watch it alone tonight. Um, but it came out this week. And um, it, it, it's funny enough, because it's a Netflix-produced film. And it's very in the vein of Black Mirror Bandersnatch, which is obviously yeah. Netflix as well. And they're kind of saying it's like a mix between Black Mirror Bandersnatch and Jumanji, which is pretty cool. Okay. But from, but from what I understand from the trailer and reading about the film, and it's it's got some good reviews. Like people are saying it's pretty good by the looks of things. It's essentially about a young coder set in modern times who stumbles upon a text-based retro game. Um, and essentially it turns out that this retro game came out in like the early 80s and it had a prize for beating the game and nobody ever won the prize. So she's going back she wants to win the prize money for it essentially you know like 40 years later but it's a point in not point and click it's a text-based adventure game text adventure text adventure and you know it's kind of like on the green you know black screen with the green writing Um, but essentially what happens is as she's playing it it's a horror game and the things that are happening in the game start happening in real life but then it gets like worse and worse and things you know she has to like type in decision so you say she has to choose or die essentially um mm. but it looks as i've got oh i used to be I, I am a big horror film fan but as i've got older like i've become more squeamish and from the trailer it looks pretty brutal like i won't i won't because we're we're a, we're a family chat show here we're a family podcast it looks pretty violent from um the things that she's having to pick to do but it kind of reminded me of like saw in the vein of that but it was just oh, wow. just really interesting that it was kind of totally based around the concept of finding a retro game and the retro competition, which we saw, you know, we used to see a lot of those things, you know, back in the 80s and stuff. Sword Quest and everything. Yeah, exactly. And it yeah. was really in the vein of that. Um, and the name of the game is um, now the game in the film. <laughs> this is where I'm going to... Cursor. Cursor. Yeah, Cursor, yeah. spelt C-U. As in a cursor on a screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and it's starring the lad from Sex Education, which I haven't watched, but I know that's that's been a big show in the UK recently and stuff. So mm. um, definitely looks like one to check out if you're up for a horror film and you're into retro games. Um, it it but, looks like a kind of Ouija board, like um, yeah, like you, you you mentioned Jumanji there, and it's kind of like choose your destiny or fate. Yeah, the thing I think about it is um, like which game company would still actually have the money, right? Like most wow. of them would have gone bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that, the prize money, or that, they would have got the, nicked by a developer or something. That's the point. I think the point. Of, I, I mean, I'm assuming here. I've not seen it, um, but it's it's demonic. It's it's a cursed game. Do you know what I mean? I don't think. Obviously, it's gonna. I imagine it's gonna be some sort of twist that it was made by a madman or something. You know, and it's got something yeah. to do with demons or Satan or or something. Had I, you know, I'm completely speculating there. Because I've not watched it yet, but uh, I mean, if you, I don't know if you've watched the trailer, guys, but it does look brutal. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching it right yeah, now. Yeah. Actually, a lot of old tech in there. Um, yeah, yeah. In the trailer, you know, there's there's like old VHS setups and, and stuff, CRTs and, and uh, stuff. Yeah, so 
It yeah, yeah, cool. they have. Quite Maybe a we should all watch it. VHS watch it together, player. the three of us. <laughs> a watch party. Yeah, see who screams first. Yeah, it'll be me for sure. It's, it's a pity. It's a pity it doesn't have the interactive element though. Like obviously being called Choose or Die, that would be a really good. Yeah. Kind of, um, yeah, feature. maybe they wanted to stay away from that because it's obviously they made Bandersnatch as well. So, I mean, or maybe I mean it's been a good what four years since that came out. So maybe it would have been time yeah. for another one. They've got the technology, haven't they? So, the fact that this is a game, yeah, it would kind of be you know a logical thing for them to do that. I guess it would have been quite cool to see. I've also found something quite creepy as well about kind of stories surrounding cursed media you know for me it started with probably when i saw the ring yeah you know, that really creeped me yeah. out the fact that there was like a you know haunted vhs tape and more recently there was the um the archive 81 that we talked about yeah on netflix which um, I, I read the other day has actually been cancelled they left that on a cliffhanger and apparently they're not doing series two which right. is really bizarre considering it was like in the the top five most watched netflix shows when it was on so well, well it also sure plays into there. like polybius as well and the title itself you know um You've got like Skate or Die or Ski or Die, which was like yeah. an old, old series mm. of games. So it's kind of relating to that. Yeah, so that is available on Netflix now. I came out this week, so um, I'll put the trailer in our show notes at theretrohour.com. I'm loving those uh, New York sirens. I know, I didn't, th- I didn't think yeah. we'd actually hear them, but they're there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this weekend, like we did say, I mean, uh, Ravi is going to be doing our After Hours podcast and uh, our patrons hang out um, live from VCF because it is that weekend. You know, even though you're traveling, you're on holiday, you're still committing to the show. Ravi's still going to be here for our hangout that we do once a month. And this is something that we do um, on a Sunday evening for a couple of hours. We invite all our patrons to come on board um, and we just talk about all kinds of like retro nostalgic geeky stuff on that don't we oh yeah like um i really love it and it's like kind of a club and i'm really excited to actually kind of be doing a video from vcf and uh you know maybe showing off some systems that will be there and uh, yeah it's going to be a lot of developers and stuff get them involved because it is just like a huge chat and the thing is a lot of people join it and show off their setups so this one, I can go, look at this setup. Yeah, you're going to be the one who's going to be like, look <laughs> at this. Totally alien. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, normally everyone else has got kick-ass collections and we're really jealous, aren't we? But if Ravi's at VCF, um, yeah, that might be quite impressive. And uh, you're also going to be recording our uh, patrons' exclusive show that we do, which uh, we haven't decided on a theme for this weekend yet, but I'm sure we will soon. Our latest one's all about retro handhelds, isn't it, that came out last month. Um, so we're going to be recording a new um, episode of our patrons-only podcast, The Retro Hour, after hours, this coming Sunday. So if you uh, join us on Patreon right now, very good time for you to join. You can join us for the Hangout this weekend and uh, get the patrons-exclusive podcast, of which I think there are like, what, 22 episodes now oh, that wow. you'll unlock Quite if you lot, uh, join yeah. us on Patreon. I always think it's like, oh, we've done like 10, 22. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think over two years' worth of them that you can catch up on as well, covering all kinds of different stuff. So, But really the main reason that you'll join us on patreon is just to support this podcast make sure it keeps coming out every single friday covers all our costs of running it and everything too you get the normal episode early most weeks you get it ad free as well and on each normal episode of the podcast you get extra content on the patrons version of it too so uh, definitely worth joining us and if you do you will find your place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and that is hall of fame no way. <laughs> what do you think of that? He's got some music. <laughs> it's only been, what, five years in the making? The Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, uh, we've only got a couple this week, but let's give a huge thank you to Ewan Wood. Nova Lord. Oh, who joined us on Patreon this week. We really appreciate your support, guys. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it at theretrohour.com. 
epic Did music. Did you use uh, <laughs> auto tune on that, Dan? All, all I heard. No, that, that, all I, no, that was you, just normal. I just, I just thought it was Ravi just shouting it, and you played the music at the same time. Hall of fame. A bit of echo on it. Hall of fame. That's amazing. <laughs> right then, now before we get into our chat with uh, Dave Taylor, he's coming up in just a minute. A couple more news stories to just quickly jump into. Now, uh, this is one that is a bit of a rumor, but I think it's probably quite likely to happen. Um, this is that apparently Sega are planning on rebooting two of their classic franchises, um, Jet Set Radio and the big one, Crazy Taxi. Yeah, so pretty exciting. Bit of a leak, um, been reported by Blomberg. Um, apparently, Bloomberg. Bloomberg, sorry, yeah. Apparently this is part of like the Sega Super Game that they announced last year, you know, kind of like off the back of selling a load of their arcade. You know, we've covered it. You know, they sold a lot of their arcade properties and stuff like that. Mm. And apparently it's part of this big getting back into, you know, home gaming and stuff for Sega. They're saying that these are going to be, you know, they're not just going to put these games out. These are going to be big games and they want them to be as big and as popular as Fortnite. Uh, which sounds ambitious. Which sounds really ambitious because Fortnite, I mean, um, as far as I know, I'm not down with the kids. It's still one of the biggest games in the world. And I just think, you know, we all love Crazy Taxi. We all love Jet Set Radio. But are they going to be able to compete? But... We just don't know what they've got up their sleeves. You know, they could be full remakes, remasters, or are they going to go for like a huge battle royale version of Crazy Taxi where, with I, a thousand, it would be amazing, hundreds of people <laughs> online in one server driving around picking people up and stuff. I mean, may, maybe I've just I've, that's just speculation. I'm just making that up, but that actually sounds really cool. Now I've said it out loud. Yeah. So you know, and they might make it free to play. We just don't know. But that's just my speculation with them saying they want it to be as popular and to compete with the likes of Fortnite. I, I think that Jet Set Radio would really set itself well to an online kind of mm. sandbox world where people mm. had their own tags and they yeah. kind of took over areas and there was like different gangs and stuff. That could work really, really well. Yeah. And that's... graphically, like they were pretty beautiful and like um, that kind of new shadery style that they yeah, did. Yeah, as, as, uh, as you were literally just saying it. that all out loud, I was kind of like, you know what? I could see it suit in that kind of like Fortnite graphic you know aesthetic i could i could see that for crazy taxi and jet set radio and you know the ideas that you've just came up for jet set radio and the ideas i've just came up with for crazy taxi i think sega need to hire us guys (laughs) (laughs) i i I think crazy taxi would be harder to do because what you'd have to do is i i always felt it's a really good game but it was a very good like solo you know and yeah yeah maybe you'd have to adapt that in some way. And also I felt that sponsorship kind of destroyed it a little bit for me. Um, Do you think the fact that it was, you know, going to a KFC and it was doing all of that. that oh, was cool I love back that. In the days, it but, was... but now you have that in so many games. Uh, mm. I think maybe, yeah. maybe Jet Set Radio Future in my eyes would be better for, for this kind of online world. And uh, both of them have top soundtracks as well, you know. Mm. Well, that was going to be my next point, the fact that, you know, I've I've played certain versions of re-releases of Crazy Taxi where the offspring music's not in there. And to me, that was such a big part of the game. Mm. And I know it's something that a lot of a lot of games don't really bother doing these days, you know, using licensed music because they run into this problem when they want to do re- re-editions or remasters in a few years' time, that they've got to go through the record labels and re-license it and, you know, those contracts expire. But, yeah, if they haven't got, I mean, I don't know, you know, how much the offspring are worth these days or, you know, whoever owns the music, I imagine maybe it's worth their while doing it if it's going to be a massive game. But it just feels like, you know, it, to me, without offspring, it's not crazy taxi. 
So, so you know, in Fortnite, they have a huge industry where they um, kind of make dancers and stuff like yeah. that, and they have all yeah. these add-ons that kids buy. Jet Set Radio, a huge part of it was dancing after mm. you'd done the graffiti, and maybe they might integrate something like that. And hopefully, it won't be too much of a, a sellout thing. But um, you know, their, their Super Game Initiative says it, it, it it's about gener- generating recurring revenue sources. NFTs. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> something like selling <laughs> yeah. dancers might be part of it, you know. Yeah. Or doing you, up your car in Crazy Taxi. Yeah, you're not, you, you know, could be onto something there, Ravi, I guess, you know, if they get they hit the right market with the kids and they get, you know, the Jet Set Radio dance because that Fortnite dance was everywhere a couple of years ago, mm. wasn't it? So, you know. I've yeah. got an eight-year-old nephew. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, I've i got young teen, you know, young adults at work who work for me who <laughs> used to do it. Um, so and I'd just be like, what are you doing? It was Fortnite dance. I'm like, bloody hell, you're 21, sit back down. But um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they they could, if they tap into that market, it could be huge for them. So, you know, I've gone, in the last five minutes I was talking about this story, I've gone from not being convinced to going, this might work actually. To me though, it's interesting that they choose basically, you know, 20-year-old franchises mm. to try and reach this audience, which, like you said, is generally, I mean, you know, I don't know the exact demographic of a Fortnite player, but I just, I'd assume it's kind of that pre-teen yeah, kind of audience, Yeah, but I, really. I think um, Ravi could be onto something there with the aesthetic of the way it looks. Mm. You know, they could jump on that bandwagon and make it look like Fortnite with the cel- like the kind of new cel-shaded-looking graphics. And then also yeah, with the whole... way ahead of its time, you know. Yeah, with the whole kind of, like the dancing in it and the music in it and stuff like that, you know, they could go down, they could put licensed music in it, but go with a lot of modern, you know, rappers and stuff like that for it. So it could really, you know, really appeal to, like you say, preteens, early teenagers, and they could be on something massive. You know, with Crazy Taxi though, for me, it kind of feels like it's not a game that I play for very long. Yeah. Not because I'm, not because I'm, you know, because I'm crap at it mainly. I, you know, I always die. But it's an arcade game, yeah. really, isn't it? You know, it, yeah, it was a yeah. coin muncher originally. So it doesn't feel like the kind of game where you're going to spend it's, it's, hours it's, it's, online. You're on a set path. It's not got the free roaming that uh, Jet Set Radio has. But imagine if, say, you could be a passenger and you were getting picked up by crazy taxis or, or there was a different kind of aim in there as well. It's not just ragging around the city there were there were different goals and stuff and it was more of a like sandbox environment kind of like grand theft auto when you're driving around i guess maybe yeah yeah so i mean it's, it's interesting that the choose i mean w- one thing i'm really pleased is that you know sega are actually looking back into their catalog and using something that's not sonic the hedgehog because it feels like now with the sonic movies being so big maybe it should have been a sonic game i don't know but um, it, it is quite I think they've written kind of Sonic. Back into the... Yeah, they're probably done, yeah. done with him when it comes to games. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite refreshing to see something different from Sega. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. I've got a feeling fans of the original may not be too pleased with the results, but, you know, we'll, uh, we'll wait and see when it finally arrives. Now, before we get into our interview this week, there's one more story to quickly talk about as well. I mean, you know, we do say this whenever we talk about the Switch, that it really feels like the Nintendo Switch is becoming the go-to console for retro games, doesn't it? Because there's so much on there. And now it looks like we could be getting, and this, you know, makes perfect sense, a Game Boy Advance emulator on the Switch. It does make sense, because obviously we recently got the, the N64 one, and then uh, obviously we got the Mega Drive Genesis collection at the same time. But once again, we're all about rumours this week, aren't we? Yeah. Um, this is leaked screenshots from the actual development team behind the Switch, you know, the development team behind like, you know, the Nintendo and Super Nintendo emulation on there. It's all in Japanese, obviously, but there's essentially 
lists and lists of GBA games kind of embedded in trying to run them on the Switch. You know, we've got like Pokemon Pinball and Mario Bros on there and my my eyes can't see the smaller the smaller ones, but we've got the Game Boy start screen, you know, running on there as well. So, yeah. you know, I don't know who's got a hold of this, but I'm seeing it everywhere, you know, that it's these these are the leaked images of it coming. So wouldn't be surprised if Nintendo have leaked it themselves because <laughs> I know what they're like. But it does seem like the that would be the standard progression, that or the GameCube. But I feel like they still kind of release a lot of GameCube games on the Switch and you know, they still kind of revisit kind of some of those games. So I can't I can't see that happening. But yeah, I think the Game Boy Advance it just seems right for the Switch, doesn't mm. it? Well, this apparently leaked onto 4chan. Oh, okay. That's where it came from. And there's um, there's a Twitter account called um, Trash Bandicoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're talking about how apparently it was a um, one of their developers who came onto 4chan, put a couple of screenshots up of it, but which to me, if this is someone who works internally for Nintendo on this, it seems a pretty brave thing for them to do I to was, do a screenshot I, of their... Uh, <laughs> I was literally about to say, like, I just I can't see Nintendo not being behind that then. Like, yeah. they no longer you, work for Nintendo. Yeah, I was gonna say, if you work for Nintendo and you're doing something like that, then what? what you're like what <laughs> kind of thing? Like, that's a bit. We know what Nintendo are like, so that's a bit of a crazy thing to well, just do. Apparently, um, on the leak, it says some of the some of them have uh, supposedly been in, in a ROM folder at some point, and mm. and they're kind of highlighted in yellow. So there's like a list of all the file name file names here, and. Uh, there's stuff like uh, Mario Party Advanced, um, okay. Choo Choo Rocket, and interestingly, they're doing the Japanese region version of that, so it must be kind of like region unlocked. And there's uh, quite a list of stuff uh, going through there. And also, um, some of them, like uh, Pokemon Ruby, Sapphire, and Emerald, have yeah. been using a link cable emulation as well. Oh, wow. Um, so so there's... There's some interesting looking stuff going on there, and maybe there might be an ability to link up with other gamers on on the uh, emulator. Hopefully, more yeah. will come of this. I'm assuming they're going to modify it to online battling rather than you know, yeah, yeah, to the play original, over the, the original network, ROM. Probably. Yeah, the original ROM will be like you got to plug in your link cable now, kind of thing. Whereas they obviously go into that and change all the code and etc. So you just do well it as as we so. know, they package these as like individual games rather than yeah you know, just releasing the whole emulator. So it'll probably be like a, a Pokemon package that you get. And then um, you can I mean, I, I don't know. With the Switch, they do they do like the NES emulator and you click on it and you get all the NES games. And then they do oh, it with okay. the SNES. And the Super Nintendo. Yeah, and the Super Nintendo, the N64. I, I, I don't have one, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You you pay the subscription subscription uh, monthly and you go on to like the Super Nintendo and there's like 40 games on there for you just to play. Like you don't oh, have wow. to then pay. Okay. So I think that's what, people are thinking they're going to be doing with this as well um with the game boy advance now don't get me wrong there is games on there you can just buy individually as well um but i think this is edging more towards that it's just going to be a full-on game boy advance emulator that you get part of part of your subscription like you do the other ones which makes sense because i mean mm-hmm. you know it, it it's you know these are games that were designed for handhelds anyway and obviously the switch I, you know even though i generally play it on a screen i know most people use it um handheld mm-hmm. um, and also we've got that timing of you know the 3ds and the wii u stores closing as well yeah. So it would make sense that, you know, they, they want to kind of repackage those games onto a, a new system. And yeah, I'm, you know, I'm looking at stuff here, the fact they're going to do stuff like random matchmaking and things as well, which would be amazing for like Game Boy games, which is 
brings a whole new dimension to it, really, doesn't it? Because back in the day, you could only play it either at most with a link cable or <laughs> generally just passing your console back and forth. Mm-hmm. So having um, random matchmaking on uh, on the Nintendo online service would be pretty cool as well. So uh, it, it kind of feels like we're moving down this direction. We talked about it, you know, a couple of weeks ago. We talked a bit about, you know, um, Microsoft Game Pass and what Sony are doing there. The, the and Nintendo have got yeah. such a heritage, haven't they? So it, yeah, it kind of did. feels like... It, yeah, it, it would make the Switch, you know, the go-to platform for all Nintendo games. Yeah, interesting. It's an actually. easy way to fill up, isn't it? Like, just mm, look mm, at your old yeah. libraries, get your old systems ported, and then you're sorted. Although th- this was 4chan, so it could just be someone completely trolling who made it in Photoshop. Yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it's just, it's and it's just gone viral, which was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also equally as likely, let's be honest, but uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. Maybe Nintendo will see that and be like, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, so, maybe. You know, yeah. Of it. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll link that up. And everything else we talk about, you find all the stories. You don't have to Google around for them. They're all in our show notes every week on your podcast app, or you can get it from the retrohour.com. Right, next time we're taking a trip back to the classic days of id Software, getting some incredible stories with our special guest this week, the wonderful Dave Taylor, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the main event then when we welcome on this week's very special guest, a veteran of the video games industry, someone who's worked on massive franchises, games that we grew up playing, huge companies. I think our guest today ticks all of those boxes. Let's welcome on the incredible Dave Taylor. How are you doing, Dave? Fine, man. Thanks for having me. (laughs) This is brilliant. Uh Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, do some reminiscing with us. Now, um, sure. you know, before we get into the, the companies that you've worked for and the games that you've worked on, it's always quite nice to kind of find out our guests, you know, geek credentials and kind of go back to day one. I mean, what was it that initially got you into gaming then? Do you remember your very first experience of a video game? Oh, good Lord. I guess that would have been uh, an arcade, uh, Arnie's Arcade in Connecticut. Yeah, just pumping quarters into, you know, the old school coin-op games. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I was just instantly head over heels. And then um, then I got a dose of, you know, um, finally convinced my dad to get us an Atari. Cracked out on that. And then I had a friend down the street named uh, Jason Keough who had every single thing you could possibly imagine, every handheld every console and it was just like playtime over there but even more importantly i had a couple of friends who had apple two pluses and um i mean i was really i can't remember the sequence because to me it was just like a world of drugs that opened up before me this incredible buffet and uh you know take your pick and uh it was all just so fabulous but it was really the apple two games that I fell most deeply in love with, and and the the big titles for me were Ultima, uh, Wizardry, uh, the original Castle Wolfenstein, uh, Rescue Raiders, stuff like that. A mix of things, uh, fantasy, action, sort of um, strategy, mix of stuff. We've had so many developers on that have said the Apple II, especially in America, was a a huge kind of influence. Did you end up then moving on to an Apple II yourself after the Atari? Yeah, well, after a, an, a, an extremely long campaign of uh, begging my dad, uh, he relented in high school and got me a completely pimped out Apple IIe system. Had two disk drives, you see. 
and 128 kilobytes. Not 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 the 64 kilobytes kitty stuff. I bet that was expensive. Oh my god! But really, the, the super high pricey stuff was the dot matrix printer, which printed things. Mm. Um, but did you kind of convince him it was for schoolwork and stuff? Oh, of course, <laughs> I convinced him it was going to enrich me and do all the good things, and you know, said whatever needed to be said, and I suppose it did. Well, how did you stop programming then? Well, that would that would have been let's see, yeah, when my dad got me an Apple IIe, I started fiddling with Basic, uh, AppleSoft Basic. And I think like most kids my age who were starting to program, one of the first things I made was a dungeon master program that would help roll the dice and do the saving throw tables and the two hit tables and all that stuff for me. And then I moved on to a little painting program, you know, various things. Yeah, that's that's how I got started. You know, these um, these games you were making at home then, I mean... Did you eventually get these published yourself? What was kind of the, your entrance into the industry? So the first games I made were in college, and they were specifically for a programming contest. And the programming, uh, it was called the IEEE CS. IEEE is a student organization and a larger professional organization for electrical engineering folks. Uh, and the IEEE CS subgroup is for the computer programmer types and uh they had this state programming contest and the way it worked was the organizers would make a game and then the competitors would show up on the big day they'd be shown the game um and they would have to write uh some ai to play the game on their behalf so it was a programming contest where it's like surprise here's the game and here's your routine that you get to program to control your duder. And now you're going to go head to head with the other, you know, programs and see who wins. IEEE is still about, isn't it? Um, I, oh, yeah. I know a lot of people that are really into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they do all kinds of important standards. And yeah, no, they're, they're alive and kicking. So I, I eventually, uh, so I think the first one I can remember is I worked on a sort of a surround snake game. Um, you can't stop, but you can't stop moving forward, but you can turn left or right. Um, mm. And the idea is to surround the other snakes, sort of like Tron, if you played that, uh, the Tron Light Cycles game. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, your, basic, your goal is basically just to surround the other snake. And every time you eat an apple, you, your snake grows longer. Um, the snake tail grows longer. And uh, yeah, that was on the PC under DOS, I believe. And um, that was my first game I worked on. And then I got really ambitious and I started uh, what was called the National Programming Contest under the same organization. And it was the same idea, but instead of being on a single PC where you have two subroutines fighting it out, instead we got um, companies to donate uh, fancy pants, Unix workstations. And each team of three programmers had three workstations and their AI would run, you know, they could have three of the same AI running on three stations, or they could have, uh, you know, three different AI running on three workstations because they had three coders per team. And then it was a three versus three networked um, head-to-head game of AI versus AI. And then in the end, there would be this big, like, 48-player, uh, you know, 
is that 16 teams of three? Yeah, 16 teams of three sort of uh, all-out battle to see which team would survive of AIs. And those those are the first games I worked on. Um, and it, the, the very first one I did for the national programming contest was called Gobble. And mm-hmm. you played Ma, Pa, or Squirt. And Ma was this big fat woman with a frying pan and she had a lot of hit points and tremendous damage, but not very much reach. Uh, Paul was this skinny guy and he had a hoe and he had range, but it wasn't as damaging as Ma's frying pan. Then there was Squirt who was a little kid and he had a slingshot with crazy range, but very little damage. And in the middle of the screen, there was a turkey inside of a house and there was a couple bushes near the house and some windows around the house and you could use the bushes to hide so that they couldn't see you. And the goal was to get Mopar Squirt in that house, grab the turkey and bring it back to your porch before the other team does. It was a great <laughs> lesson in, <laughs> in uh, how hard it is to ship to ship a game on the big day. Because it sounds like, you know, you were doing some pretty advanced stuff, especially stuff with AI. I mean, you know, a lot of people we talked to like started making, you know, Space Invaders clones or something. That sounds like well, went I, pretty hard. I say hard, AI, but I really just mean, you know, n- nothing that fancy. I just mean like computer controlled characters. Uh, so did you decide at this stage that you wanted to make a full-time career in the industry then? Or did you have any kind of um, other plans? Were your parents supportive? How did that kind of work? Oh, I, I wanted to do it since I uh, first played Ultima and I heard about this character slash real person, Lord British, a.k.a. Richard Garriott, and was immediately immediately had man bro love for him uh, and just, uh, uh, yeah, I thought, God, that would be so cool. I mean, you know, what kid wouldn't think that? Uh, so, yeah, no, er- early on, I was like, this this would just be the shit. Well, how did you find out about its software? Um, in college, uh, in addition to the NPC stuff, I was working on a very early electronic game magazine called Game Bytes, spelled with a Y. It was shipped on floppy disk, and it was actually edited by uh, the sadly late Ross Erickson, who was famous for helping to start and evangelize the xbox live arcade program and i was reviewing games at first because i thought this is a way for me to get free games and all i have to do is write my opinion about them and then i very quickly realized i have to play even the awful games that i don't want to play so i thought well i can use this as an excuse to meet my heroes so i uh interviewed richard garriott i was in austin texas and that's where origin systems was and, uh, and I, you know, I was just over the moon uh, with that. Uh, asked him all the questions. I was just completely fascinated. Uh, Chris Roberts was also there. So then I interviewed him. And, I, you know, that was a fascinating technical interview for me. And then, um, uh, and then after that, I was out of Origin Systems Legends. But in software, this scrappy little team in Dallas had just come out with Wolfenstein 3D, which... Uh, uh, I and everybody else was busy playing, and I, I would get particularly nauseous playing. But uh, it was it was so interesting for me because even though I'd get nauseous, I'd still play it. So it was it was, it was fascinating to me because it was so addictive, yet nauseating. Uh, and I was just fascinated by this pull that I that I would do it. And I hate being nauseous more than just about anything else. 
So I did this um, group phone call with the whole team interviewing them. And uh, I couldn't really tell who was answering everything, you know, uh, because there were so many people on the other end of the line. But mm. uh, every time I asked a really geeky question, of course, there was this one dude who kept answering all like, how do you get direct access to the frame buffer in next step? You know, stuff like that. And uh, he, you know, that would be Carmack and the really friendly guy who's answering everything, everything else that I liked to hear about was Jay Wilbur, the CEO. And um, yeah, after that interview, I wrote a whiny little email to Carmack, you know, saying, oh, gee, you know, how do I get into the game industry? I've been, been doing games down here. And uh, I just, I guess I had timed it right. He needed, uh, they needed help uh, porting Wolf 3D to the Sega Genesis. And so he kind of made me an offer. So did you move then to, to go start and work there? No, actually, I, um, I said, please, no, because <laughs> I've still got <laughs> senior lab. And this is my last year in electrical engineering. He was trying to get me to leave school with just oh, wow. three months left. Uh, and I said, look, look, I'll, I'll study the, the Sega Genesis tech ref manual. And then when I'm out and I'm done with this, I'll be able to hit the ground running on this thing. And he kept pestering me over the summer, uh, but I somehow held him off and managed to finish. And then by the time I got there, um, he was like, forget that. Uh, we're late on this Doom game and uh, I, I need your help on this instead. Uh, and so uh, thankfully, I didn't have to work on that. Well, when you got there, I mean, kind of describe the the setup at id Software, you know, in those Doom development days. What was the, the vibe like and what kind of stuff, what equipment were we using mainly? So... I was on, a, I think it was a 4666, which was generally, I think it was 33 megahertz, 66 megahertz internal of the CPU. And uh, I want to say it was like maybe eight megabytes, maybe it was more of uh, RAM. And then um, then we all had next step machines, which were real operating systems running, you know, a BSD variant of Unix. And um, I pretty quickly set up my own Linux box somewhere in there. I can't remember, but it was sort of your typical, as far as the office decor, it was a sort of nondescript black building in the middle of Mesquite, which is sort of a flat paved suburb of Dallas. Uh, just pretty unremarkable. Uh, right, right next to this giant highway loop called 635, if I recall. And, uh, uh, you know, across from a gigantic mall and and the office, you know, is that sort of short, super thin pile of carpet that loves to absorb coffee stains. Uh, yeah. That nasty ceiling that uh, stains beautifully when it has a leak and turns, it looks like uh, some, you know, uh, like a toilet was leaking on it or something. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Where it's And uh, so it really... There's no great shakes visually, um, but that wasn't that definitely wasn't what I was distracted by. It was what was on the screen. I remember when I first interviewed down there, uh, John Romero, who's just a total showman, gave me the demo. Uh, and really, there's no one better to demo anything uh, because he he picks up on your energy and he lets you do all the jumping up and down. And he was showing me an early version of Doom, and it didn't have all the bells and whistles yet. It just had sort of the basic visualization stuff. I remember thinking to myself, I can't believe this isn't a pre-rendered cinematic. And I was just kind of 
just my mind was just blown uh, looking at this thing, even though it wasn't really a, a game yet. How important was the kind of next step operating system to the development? And had you used a, a next machine before? I had used it before, but only from the command line. Uh, I mostly was on Sun workstations, but it was very much of a muchness. Uh, that's the beautiful thing about Unix is that once you understand the command line, it's all kind of similar. And uh, yeah, it was pivotal. Like uh, I wasn't there when they first developed their level editor in Next Step, but it was obvious from how it was made that it was just so helpful in, in getting them up to speed and having a really capable editor. Uh, early on in the process. Uh, for me, because I was doing a lot of, I mean, writing writing DOS games back then really meant that you were finishing writing the operating system because the DOS operating system wasn't really complete. Um, and so you're essentially integrating a, a sound driver, a, a, a display driver, and, um, you know, stuff like that, network driver in some cases. Uh, so uh, next step was a wonderful sanity check. Like if, if I had a bug in DOS, well, it could be one of a, a zillion things, but if I had the same bug in Next Step, then it was almost certainly my fault, right? Yeah. Uh, so, and, and then uh, and the Next Step had the GDB debugger, which made debugging just so, so much easier uh, than on DOS, which was really much more like what we would call an embedded system now, uh, really more like a, a microcontroller almost. Did it make it like easier porting to stuff? Because um, there, was, there was an Atari Falcon port and a Irix port as well at one point. Yeah, so I did all the Unix ports, uh, and that was just falling off a log easy. It was mostly just make. Uh, the sound code and the display code is all I really had to do. Carmack had already done a good job of isolating those parts of the code so that I didn't have to go crawling all over the code base to, to port them. Um, and I just, you know, I had enough experience with Unix that that stuff was pretty straightforward to me. The Atari Jaguar stuff, those were nightmarish ports that um, would not have been possible without the genius of John Carmack. I just wouldn't have had the patience to do what he did. Um, I, I My job on the Jaguar stuff was like, working on the sound code uh, and the music engine. Um, and I found that just miserably difficult. Um, and I couldn't imagine having to deal with all the rest of it like John did. Um, so, yeah, that was that was not because the game, that was not possible because the game was portable. That was possible because John tied himself into knots to make it happen because he thought it was a cool a cool system architecture. It was a uh, notorious to kind of develop for the Jaguar. We've had so many devs on that have said it was a, a real tough time when they were kind of creating stuff for that. Oh yeah. I mean, the architecture was totally heterogeneous and just nuts. There were crazy huge bugs. Um, it would overheat. And on my sound code, uh, one of the things John told me is like, Oh, by the way, it can't reliably write to memory. What, what, what? you know? <laughs> so like, I had to treat two parts of the Jaguar like they were set, like like it was network code, and I was sending UDP packets, and they might not show up intact. Um, and the justification for the sound code was, oh, you know, oh well, every once in a while we'll just get a pop in the sound because it won't rely, you know, write the memory out reliably. That's like, 
oh, okay. <laughs> right. But, uh, but the same chip was also, you know, a huge part of the horsepower, this horse, the compute horsepower of the system. So, you know, we were also trying to use it to do general computation. Uh, so yeah, it was really, you know, then it would overheat. We'd have to put it in the refrigerator uh, or, or keep one in the fridge uh, to take out, in case, you know, in case we overheated one. It was just some, it was a mess. See, at least you actually use a Jaguar hardware, though, because I know a lot of uh, developers just like use the 68K and ignored all the extra stuff that was on there. But it did kind of prove that, you know, if you if you made the effort and knew what you were doing, I mean, you know, Doom on there was, you know, probably its best game. You know, a lot of the library was awful on the Jaguar. So it proved that, you know, with the right skills, you could make something decent on there. I, you know, I didn't play any other games on there except for Trevor McFur. And uh, I definitely believe you uh, because I couldn't imagine <laughs> anybody else going through the shit that John went through to make that happen. I, you know, I, I actually, I do have fond memories uh, from having implemented my first MIDI synthesizer on the Jaguar. Uh, mm. So that that I have as a happy memory, as well as working closely with Bobby Prince on that. So that uh, that was a very fond memory, but the rest of it was just horrific. <laughs> well, you mentioned before, you know, that you got some motion sickness when you're playing Wolfenstein 3D. Did you kind of, you know, I, I think they called it, you know, finding your FPS legs back then, didn't they? Did you um, kind of get over that when you started playing Doom or were there any like tricks that you had to do not to like hurl when you were playing it? Uh, no, it was, a, it was a motivator for me to debug quickly, essentially. So interestingly, uh, Doom and Wolfenstein weren't my favorite game genre, right? But playing Deathmatch, especially with Romero, was just so fun because to hear him just howl with delight at killing you uh, and just his beautiful insults, uh, his <laughs> his trash talking, it was just poetry. And Sean Green started to get really good at it. Uh, it his, his joy playing it was infectious. Uh, so even though it made me nauseous, uh, I would I would play as long as I could until I started. There were sort of phases for me. It was um, uh, farting, sweating, and then wanting to throw up. And um, and I uh, and he would push me as hard as I could go. And then eventually I I would get better and better at it. But I never really got super acclimated to it. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was always hard for me. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was I was much much more interested in the in the coding challenge. I was I was uh, I was in a panicky state because this was my first job out of college, and um, nobody told me that Carmack was you know maybe one of the greatest programmers in the game industry. Um, and so I just thought, well, what if he's just kind of typical and I'm completely stupid, right? Um, so I was paddling frantically to keep from drowning in this, uh, I don't know, flood of self-esteem issues uh, because here was this dude just pulling away from me, already way more advanced than me as a coder and pulling away at like this super linear rate uh, while I was frantically trying to keep up. And uh, so that was most of what was on my mind, like, you know, Jesus Christ, how do I get anything done today to make myself a fraction as worthy as, as this person? Well, when when Doom kind of came out and, uh, you know, other people saw it, um, 
were you getting much feedback from the public and uh, uh, what was the kind of reaction like and uh, how, how did you guys decide to follow it up with Doom 2? Well, the reaction was nuts. People were pretty thrilled about it. My main interaction with folks, I guess, was through um, IRC channels, I think. And um, I started uh, populating my dot plan file. Uh, the folks that did didn't know about this finger command you could use to uh, find, you know, to, to essentially dump the contents of your user's dot plan file. Uh, it was sort of like an early text only version of blogging, right? Um, mm. So I started putting a couple of things in there. People started following it, and then the, some of the other guys started doing it, and then it kind of became a thing. And so, yeah, that was most of my interaction with folks. And uh, I don't know, I you know, I was young and had self esteem issues, and also, so I was doing all the embarrassing things one does with those sorts of things going through your head. See, I, you know, when Doom came out, I just remember it being such a phenomenon. It was the first time that I remember, cause, you know, I, I had a lot of friends who had Amiga computers. It was popular over here, but then they realized Doom wasn't coming out. They all sold up and got a PC. And it was the first time I remember people actually buying a new computer just to play one game. I'd never seen that before. Yeah. Um, I heard quite a bit about that myself. Um, I was already doing that sort of thing for the Ultima games. I, uh, but yeah, it really kind of turned a corner with Doom and Quake. And I remember everybody started clamoring about like, well, do you have one of these new fancy Pentiums? And they were, God, they're so fast. And if you use both of the UV pipes, you can get dual issue. And oh my God, you know, and like that, that was a really exciting uh, time for me um, as a coder and geek. I, but that, I don't know, that sort of stuff. It didn't land as much to me just because um, I wasn't really trying to keep up with the Joneses at home. I was happy with whatever computer they gave me at work. And mm. uh, and really, I just, I, I hated DOS. I hated it. Uh, so I I was spending as much time as possible in Linux or NextStep. I only used DOS to play games. And, I, and it was really sort of an awkward time where um, the games were getting good but they still weren't as good as the greats from the Apple II uh, days. Um, mm. There was this sort of awkward transition. And um, so, uh, you know, I was definitely playing some PC games, but I wasn't really, I, I wasn't into FPSs and I wasn't really. Uh, Chasing the hard way up. Yeah, exactly. Well, there is a you know famous song on Doom 2, um, the Dave D. Taylor blues. What's kind of the story behind that? I've always been quite curious about that track. Oh, I don't know. That's probably just uh, Bobby picking up on me. I was always complaining about something. It was probably something to do with that. I don't know. We we really were uh, dear friends and uh, just just got along famously. And we and we spent a lot of time together on that Jaguar thing. And uh, yeah, he was you know just a lovely guy, just a lovely lovely guy. Uh, and, and I thought he was such an interesting character. You know, he he was a lawyer before he became a musician, and he I believe yeah. he ran a halfway house for a while. Uh, and he had this great, wonderful Southern drawl uh, to his voice. He was just kind of this complete package of fascinating to me. So I, I don't know if there was a specific story behind that. I think he just, you know, I think like all of us, we just sort of pulled from our surroundings to name things or whatever. You know, I, I did the same sort of thing with the cheat codes. 
Well, you ended up uh, working on Wolfenstein 3D as well, but uh, there were ports for the Jag and the SNES and the, the Macintosh. How were you kind of involved with that? And um, what was it like going onto a Nintendo console? Oh, I never played with that. I only worked on the Jaguar version. I don't I don't know if they reused my MIDI sequencer for the other ports. So we, we had basically licensed a proprietary sound engine from Paul Radek licensed i don't know maybe it was, i guess it was work for hire i don't know um but we we had uh you know he was an external contractor and i my I, my job was integrating that sound library into uh, into doom uh but on quake i i did my own sound engine from the ground up that that was i think one of the earlier things i started banging on for for quake i i, I wandered off the the ports as soon as possible <laughs> the jaguar thing was I had a traumatic for me. Like I said, loved working with Bobby, uh, Doug, figuring out how MIDI sequences, MIDI works. But uh, yeah, I, I wanted back on the PC. Well, as you mentioned, Quake there as well. That was uh, an amazing title and it had some involvement with uh, Nine Inch Nails as well. So what was the kind of um, uh, kind of idea behind that and porting yeah. the sound to that? Uh, that was really fun. Uh, so I ended up, getting to uh, hang out with uh, Trent a couple times. Uh, I guess I went on the tour bus with him from Dallas down to Austin and hung out at his house for a while. Uh, I don't think there was, I think the it was a little bit like the pitch to my dad of like, I'll use the Apple II for useful things. And I think uh, American McGee was basically saying, hey, we're going to have this uh, important time with uh, Trent and that'll matter and Dave's doing the sound code and Trent's doing the sound. So therefore, yes, right? But of course, in reality, we were just like, you know, I want to hang out with this dude. Uh, we were all listening to his music, which was incredible. Uh, and it turns out he was a huge Doom fan. Um, so, But he really wanted to, I, I think he was a little disappointed with having me as the little hanger on uh he i think he was really wanting to get carmack to hang out more and uh but yeah that that was fun but really didn't interact too much with him during for the actual integrating the sounds like i like i said i was mostly focused on the on the sound uh, engine uh, although i don't know this is stuff where i'm sort of misremembering things my friend just told me that my sound code is still it's still in the quake engine which it doesn't sound right to me because i I, i'm I'm pretty sure carmack wrote huge chunks of it but uh i I smoked a lot of weed between then and now so (laughs) yeah well i mean no today doom it's it's almost become a meme you know it's it's a saying online like you know can it run doom and we've seen it running on everything from you know microwaves to uh a pregnancy tester. I think we saw <laughs> Shit, it running really? on a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's on everything these oh, days. Oh, pregnancy tester. I had <laughs> and do, do you find it like you know crazy that that kind of thing happens and just like you know how iconic Doom's become in the last like twenty five years? That no, kind of blow you your know mind what? Uh, I find it beautiful. Um, so I've been proud of very few things in my career, but I'm very proud of having pushed hard both to get Doom on the various. Unixes, and I'm very proud to have pushed open sourcing Doom mm. um, at the company. And uh, because I code wants to be open sourced, right? It's a much more useful thing when you open source it. Uh, and there's a very, very good reason that Epic open sourced the Unreal Engine, right? It is a yeah. superior approach. And, you know, really, it's 
to me, it's less about Doom being ported to everything. And it's more about just it happened to be one of the first commercial games that was ever open sourced, right? And once you open source it, uh, I don't care what it is, like people are going to want to port it to everything, right? Just because, especially if you make it, you know, sort of portable. Like if, you, if you're going to port that to a pregnancy test, I'm telling you, that's not a fun port, man. Like <laughs> somebody had to work their ass off on that. Some of the ports I've seen are just incredible. And they really shouldn't be called ports. They should be called what we called anyway, conversions, which is basically port implies, okay, well, I just need to change out the the IO level stuff. But conversion means like, so you've got to do a ton of work on this thing to make it happen. And as well, I remember Doom getting open sourced and that would have been like, it was 1997. So in terms of, you know, it, it wasn't all that long after the game came out. You know, you know, there are games like Grand Theft Auto V came out 10 years ago. They're still selling that. Um, but, you know, so that was relatively recent after the release. And I remember then, you know, I, I said all my friends who sold their Amigas, I remember a version coming out on the Amiga in 97 when it got open sourced. What was kind of the conversation around that then? And uh, how did the idea kind of come about that they should put the source code out there, you know, just a few years after the game was, I imagine, still selling commercially? Yeah, I mean, so I, I had left... I think I had left before that they actually open sourced it. I'm not sure I remember all this correctly. I just remember more like being kind of, you know, I had come into this atmosphere where they had the, you know, only probably the only game developers in the world with the good sense to use next step at the time. Right. But I could also tell that most of the company was really unfamiliar with like the whole Unixy world and the open source world. So I felt a little bit like a kind of, a, you know, sort of an ambassador for that space. And so I was off, I was trying to expose them to the, the, the game greats in that world, like NetTrek, uh, which was, a, I believe it was a 16 simultaneous multiplayer game, uh, you know, that was out well before Doom. Um, and was incredible. It was client server based. It uh, had character classes, essentially. It was incredibly fun. And um, I remember showing them that. And because it didn't have those kind of like amazing commercial graphics, it, it sort of landed with a thud, right? Because it was hard to see in that spectrum for them. But that was something I was always doing. I was always kind of like evangelizing that kind yeah. of world. You, you ended up um, founding like crack.com and uh, that was really interesting. I, I thought abuse was a great little title and um, you know, do you think it not being 3d and being kind of side scroller meant the industry kind of, um, you know, didn't embrace it massively. Whereas the gamers did. I honestly don't know. Like I, I got quite a bit of love from the industry for it. I actually got unprecedentedly lovely, publishing terms for it. Um, the thing that didn't really work out with abuse is that it was a platformer on the PC, which was a big no-no back then. That was the wrong genre that it really belonged on a console if it was a platformer. So that was our big mismatch uh, for as far as like doing gangbusters on sales. But yeah, it was pretty generally beloved. Uh, I was I was frankly surprised at how many people would come up to me and say, Oh my God, I loved abuse as opposed to doom or quake. 
it, it was it was ported on so many platforms. I'm reading that it was on the Acorn Archimedes. I remember it on Amiga OS, uh, OpenBSD as well, Mac OS. Yeah, so it, it seemed yeah. to kind of have that code where it could, uh, you know, be um, converted or ported onto a different platform. Um, relatively yeah, we easily. actually well, we actually did the the porting deal with Bungie for the Mac, and they actually did the port, if I recall, and. Uh, they and because they had such a great relationship with Apple, uh, abuse actually shipped on every iMac for a while. Those days wouldn't last long <laughs> for, for games. Um, and I, I I love the kind of uh, way that it was like you know keyboard and mouse as well, but for a side scroller. Yeah, and, no, uh, it was a yeah I, kind of unique uh, interface. Yeah, I agree, and that that's uh, that's one of the few things that I get really passionate about in game design um is user interface and um we spent a, a fair bit of time kind of uh iterating on that but uh, the original game actually so uh abuse is actually kind of an aborted fetus of a game so the original game was called alien grew and it was a side-scrolling brawler that had this really advanced uh real ai like neural net ai uh with a morphing rendering engine that, that my brilliant partner, Jonathan Clark, had written. It was kind of coming together, but I had paired them up with this um, brilliant sci-fi author named Stephen R. Donaldson to do the plot, who was really good at doing sort of anti-heroes, really dark stories. Um, and he was writing the first comedy uh, I'd ever seen uh, from him. And it was brilliant writing, but he kept changing the gameplay mechanics. And I just couldn't keep up with them. The original story was aliens are invading and you're an IRS agent. And the way that aliens are invading is that they've put, they've secretly put a, a mutagen into the IRS 1040 forums. And when people handle them to pay their taxes, they <laughs> turn into aliens, right? We, we couldn't really keep up with it. The, the AI training algorithm was really hard to figure out. And so what could we do? With what we, with the tech we've come up with, and feel like we, a game we could make in our sleep, and we were like, well, you know, a, a side scroller, and and what if we did this cool aiming thing with the mouse? Um, uh, I was a huge fan of this old coin-op game. I can't remember the name now. That had this eight, two eight-directional joysticks, one for aiming, one for moving. And it just seemed like a cool idea to do it with the mouse. It was a really cool-looking game as well, actually, and it, oh, and it know, fit right? nicely into that. Uh, kind of alien theme and uh, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. just the darkness about it. Really beautiful. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, all tributes to Jonathan and Murray and Jung. Uh, Murray had done some beautiful art production. Jung had really kind of fleshed it out wonderfully in this amazing design. And uh, Jonathan had just done this amazing real-time lighting engine. Like in so many ways, the abuse engine was just way ahead of its time. Um he just did a fantastic job. And you uh, ended up kind of releasing the source code at the end. And Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, why was that decision made? Because I, I know it was shareware originally, which uh, is kind of the same model as uh, Doom. Uh, well, this is, you know, same same kind of model. Like, uh, I, I'm just a big open source weenie, and so it was really important to me to get it out there as open source. I think, uh, I can't remember exactly when we did it, but we decided to release it public domain as opposed to under a license. Uh, but there were parts that we held back, like we didn't give up the trademark. We didn't own 
the sound effects, I want to say, because those were Bobby Prince's. And we also didn't release the the copyrights on the what are called the registered levels, right? So the the part of the shareware game that you buy, right? So, but we released a chunk of it. And then uh, it was Sam Lantinga who picked it up and really kind of ran with it. And I said, as long as, you know, as long as it's for this, then yeah, you can use the trademark and all that stuff. And as long as it's for the open source version and it remains free, it's not, you know, commercialized. Except, you know, shareware, I think, was an interesting model. And obviously, you know, originally I remember it was, you know, make a donation if you like the game. And then it became into, you know, more of a model of we'll give you extra content if you register. Um, and then that kind of turned into, you know, licenseware and we've got donationware and that kind of thing. Do you think there's still a place for like, you know, the shareware kind of model in, in modern gaming? Oh, sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, it, you know, these things where you basically say, hey, pay what you think it's worth. Yeah. It, it, it just it really depends on circumstances whether that's going to work, right? I, I remember I was doing a lawn sale. My friend Naomi and I stayed out all day selling this stuff on the lawn, and then it, it was getting late. We wanted to have dinner, and I had the idea: well, what if we just put a sign on there and say, "Take what you like, pay what you think it's worth, slip it under the door of apartment three, right? And we went to dinner thinking, "Yeah, this stuff's all going to be gone. We're going to see fifty cents under there." Uh, and sure enough, it was mostly gone, but for the dregs, but to our shock, we came back and there was just a pile of money under the door. And, uh, I was really impressed by that. Uh, so it's not really, it's not just something that works in, you know, software. It really, I think can work in lots of things. Well, one later title that you did, uh, that I absolutely adore was, um, Lord of the Rings battle for middle earth. What was your kind of involvement in that title? Oh, very brief. It was a three-week contracting gig. They needed help optimizing the GPU performance. And so I was talking to NVIDIA and basically sort of uh, instrumenting the code and trying to get all of the DirectX calls under one module. So unlike uh, Doom uh, or Quake, where we had everything very carefully placed in a handful of modules for all the display calls, um, Battle for Middle Earth had inherited an engine. I think it was the Command and Conquer Generals engine originally, which, if you've played that game, is <laughs> not, yeah. not the starting engine you would think was used for Battle for Middle Earth. And it kind of turned into this Franken engine. You know, it was really kind of all over the place. That was the middle. That I don't know if you recall, but that was actually the game over which the EA spouse dispute came up. That really changed labor laws in the game industry. And uh, I was struck by the misery of this poor team that had been on sort of a forced, you know, crunchy death march. And uh, they were um, they were buying these Jamba Juice things and then they were buying meals for them and they basically wouldn't let them go home, let them go home. And, uh, and I remember my boss was trying to, get me to play ball with this. And I just wasn't having it. And I felt really bad for these guys. One, one of the things the coders did uh, that really kind of struck me is, you know, those really thick rubber bands. Um, yeah. They would walk up behind each other and just beam each other in the back with them. Uh, and that was considered good fun. 
Ouch. It struck me as the sort of thing that you might do in like a sensory deprivation tank, like when you're just crying out for any sensation, like pain is fine. Just give me something to distract me from this horror. Sounds uh, like kind of a torturous environment. It to really be was. And, and yeah, there, and I remember at the end of the day, they would have these, they would have a play session where you try the game for a little while and then you go into a meeting and you'd give feedback. And I was sort of thrust in the middle of this and I was like, well, wait a minute, this game's no fun. Why are we talking? You know, th there was very much of missing the forest for the trees. Like I found this bug, I found that bug. It's like, well, but this shit isn't fun. This is broken. Right. Uh, and so I, uh, brought this stuff up and was very quickly shut down. And I was like, this whole place just feels like it's on a bad path, you know? Yeah. Uh, we I, were, I, we, we could kind of tell that like, um, as gamers. So, um, I was a huge fan of RTS and that kind of concept, but you know, that you play multiplayer and you get to a point with hundreds of units and you get ready to go into your battle and then it would crash. <laughs> You've done all this yeah. working to kind of build up your whole huge armies, go into battle and then it just couldn't handle it. And it just yeah, and, done. and this is just a non-starter. I, I was like, this is a, and I, I felt with all the pressure and the, just the, just the bitter mood that uh, I, there wasn't much I could do there. And, and, I really just wanted out. I think I, I can't even, I think I sort of pushed myself out <laughs> after three weeks. I can't even remember, but I, I wanted nothing to do with it because the, the whole scene and, and the poor guy who brought me in, I love the dude to death, but uh, uh, I could tell he felt like he was sort of stuck in this middle of this morass as well. You know, some games are just like that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you can work your ass off on a great game or you can work your ass off on a, on a really troubled game and it's like almost more work on the troubled game just way less satisfying and um yeah i smelled that well one game that i hope you've got you know nicer memories of <laughs> um karateka i mean that that was obviously you know kind of you know the precursor to prince of persia you know um jordan mechna were you a fan of his work originally and how did you get involved with the the steam re remake of that game uh i was a huge huge fan of the original um huge like it was such a cool zen experience it was a permadeath game it was so challenging i just i loved how he brought together the code and the design and the art and the music so deliciously like having programmed on the apple too it really made you appreciate like how challenging everything was and what a perfect zen piece of art it was you know um and I got to know him when I came down here to start um, Carbon Carbon Six with uh, American, and I uh, I started becoming a friend of his ex now ex-wife. Uh, she was doing photography. I was studying acting as a hobby, and um, was happy to play digestible protein in front of her camera. You know, um, yeah. And then I got to talking to Jordan, saying, "Man, you know, Karateka was so good," and really just started lobbying him to remake it, and finally got him to agree. And so we, you know, went off on that adventure together, raising money and coming up with the design, finding teams and stuff like that. So I, I came on ostensibly as sort of a, at first, sort of like a, a rep, like I'll try to put to help put together the money and team and whatever help you want with the design. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting to help with the design. I um, ended up coming with, up with that idea of um, 
of uh, starting off with the true love. And then if he failed, then it's the monk who loves her a little less. And then after him, it's the brute if he fails. It kind of turned into a more of a producing role. And it really, I, I ended up doing things that I, uh, I wasn't terribly good at. And um, uh, I, I was really, I've always thought of myself more as a hey baby producer. Like I'm not a terribly like don't don't ask me to make budgets and schedules and to crack whip on people. Um, I'm not I'm not that kind of producer. I I think I'm more of a cheerleader and uh, and putting things together kind of guy. Anyway, so it, you know it was a great learning experience for me. Uh, I, I didn't really like how it turned out in the end. Uh, one of the key things I thought was missing was that uh, in the original, I don't know if you remember, uh, but it was very sensitive to the distance from which you, you were from your opponent and how your blows yeah. landed, depending on that. And then where they were in their attack and how you could sort of block a kick, for example. And uh, all that was lost on the new one. Uh, really, you were either within combat range or not within combat range. It was kind of a binary thing. And, uh, and I thought a lot of the dimensionality of the gameplay left with that. Uh, and it felt much less uh, kind of sort of zen to me, you know, uh, that, that magic from the original, some of that had gone away. Um, and yeah, the fact that it was like lives in there and that the difficulty felt toned down as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. Uh, I, I take full blame for that. I, I thought that doing a permadeath thing just wouldn't be tenable. Uh, hmm. during that market. Uh, so we had to have some way for you to win, but in a less satisfying way uh, so that you would want to replay it and win with her true love. But really, it, I, I wasn't the guy in charge. It really was uh, Jordan. I, you know, I was just helping to facilitate stuff. And really, I, I made as much of a mess as I did help. <laughs> like one of the first <laughs> things... Uh, you know, we, we worked on site at the developer, um, which was kind of, a, you know, we really kind of upended their management chain because Jordan Mechner is kind of a rock star in the game industry. So it's like sitting next to Brad Pitt, you know, you're like, you're constantly wanting to push up your bra kind of and, and sh you know, show them the sexy things you're working on. And, and I, I was, in, through my mind was like, let's spend nickels like manhole covers. I want to spend as little money as possible on as ugly a game as possible. That's really fun. So that once we've nailed that, we can sex it up and that sort of thing. So the first thing I did was talk to the leads and basically say, Hey, how can we uh, get you not working on this game? Uh, so, <laughs> so that we don't have as high a burn rate. And, you know, that went over great. Uh, I think like uh, one or two leads left within the first week of meeting me. And real, oh, wow. realizing that I was going to be a mess. Um, so it was, um, and, and then uh, eventually I was working on stuff that it, it just wasn't me like, Hey Dave, you know, take care of the, all the ratings agencies all over the world, the ESRB and the Peggy and the, you know, all the, like whatever they use in Brazil and Japan and, you know, and, you know, it was just like, do not sick Dave on these things. This is not, this is not a fit for me. So I think it was in the depths of our, Sony kind of stuff um, where I was like, ah, I'm checking out guys. This is not, this is not me. Well, Dave, it's been incredible reminiscing with you over the last hour or so at uh, the highs and lows of your career. <laughs> I mean, what are you up to these days then? What are you working on right now? 
Uh, I am currently the CTO of a company called Blue Vishnu, and we do um, 3D textured meshes, full body scans. So our sort of superpowers is that, are, are that we can uh, do extremely high turnaround scans. Um, so we, we just were at South by Southwest with the Tezos blockchain guys. And um, I think we did, I think it was over 200 full body scans. Um, oh, wow. One, uh, uh, one, one of those days, I think over three, three days or so, we did over 500 scans. You know, start to finish from to publishing them as as uh, NFTs on, on this this low power blockchain. So uh, yeah, I'm still banging on that, and uh, I'm helping a friend out with um, sort of a slow burn game dev, which uh, he hasn't announced, but I will certainly make noise when he's ready to do that. Well, Dave, listen, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing some of your stories with us. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure, man.